Welcome to Oregon Rooted. I'm Higher Peaks. And this is Lady Sativa. You're listening to The Dirt Show. Where we bring you Oregon's cannabis culture. the dirt show i'm higher peaks and this is lady sativa all right welcome to episode 30 uh we have special guests anthony smith and jason wilson from originally from kenevere labs uh they turned into evio labs a couple years ago Mm -hmm. which is a collection of labs that have gotten together and worked together across the state i'm not sure if they've grown uh further now but they had plans at the time to anyway we pulled this out of the 420 vault uh, this is something that was uh, was planned to be uh, <clears throat> released a year and a half ago. Quite a while ago. Quite a while ago, to say the least. But uh, listening to it, I really found that there was some good information. It obviously was one of our more nerdy talks. You know, when I sit down with Jason and Anthony, they really get into depth with things and get into some lingo sometimes that I have to double play or double listen to 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 understand maybe even triple (laughs) maybe yeah sometimes it's good to have to edit because i get to actually absorb it pretty well Uh, but anyway we do get into some good information it's it go we go over the endocannabinoid system the ecs system and i can't believe i said that right and and the cannabin (laughs) we also go over uh, cannabinoids in general and a little bit on fungi or fungi however you say it or fungi. Or fungi. Uh, <laughs> Depends specifically. on if you're a fungi or not. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we have, uh, we go over the mycorrhizae and how it relates to soil. We also go over a couple other beneficials in there, I believe, but how it relates to the soil and soil biology. And everything was really good. They had just come back from a, um, what do you call it? It was an expo type thing, a convention. Mm-hmm. And had some speakers that came in, I guess, were really good. So they share some of that information. Anyway, I don't know if it's an episode you want to smoke to or if you want to just listen at work maybe and then go home and smoke. <laughs> Smoking is definitely in order. So I know. Yeah, it'll, it'll help you absorb it that, that way. That helps me absorb. I have to keep my mind on focused on things. <laughs> These are really one of our better episodes, though, because, like I said, they really bring the science Mm-hmm. That's that's my point of science. I have to level. pay attention, so I have to calm my mind down by smoking. But that's because I'm too freaking hyperactive. I totally <laughs> agree with you. And you're such a multitasker. Everybody, you know, right before the show here, we before we sat down to record, she's doing her makeup in front of the mics. So. <laughs> Thanks. That's hey, I had to prepare and get yeah, you want to look good for the so I can look good for the day while we record. I know. You want to look good for the recording. Yeah. That yeah. we don't put video to. Well. <laughs> so speaking of the uh, ECS system, I cleaned mine out for 136 days. Were you impressed that I did that? 
Yeah, that was pretty impressive. I cleaned out of everything. I did not clean out of everything. No, you smoked the whole time. <laughs> That's pretty powerful, though, to smoke since you're 18 years old and then quit for 134, 136 days and, and let you keep doing it in front of me. Yeah, I was pretty impressed. I need to cut your hair. Turn I know. Turn into a mountain man. That's why I don't release any videos. I'm afraid I'll <laughs> scare somebody. Anyway, We're just so, blending into the environment. <laughs> well, you know, Southern Oregon's all about the, what is it, the flat bills, the pendants. And the wooks. I love them. And the wooks. So I'm they turning make into our environment. One. So, well, if I turn into a full blown one, it's your fault and you caused it. That is not my blame, people. Not my blame. So 136 days, though, is pretty, pretty long. It's like four and a half months. And I liked it, to be honest. It gives you a different perspective on things. And it definitely resets you at that long. I don't know how long it takes to reset, but I'm thinking probably a little bit longer than 30 days. <laughs> uh but 136 is, it was good. When I came back, when I left, I was having to eat edibles that were like hundreds of milligrams. I just made some heavy doses and you ate two of them most of the time. Yeah. And coming back after cleaning out, it was really nice. It, I was on, I think the first edible you brought home was 50 milligrams. Mm -hmm. Was it that? Was that the Willamette Valley? Yeah, it was the Willamette Valley. So shout out to Willamette Valley. Those guys rock on those. They kind of my replacement for the squibs now we kind got of the, they are <laughs> i'm being nice i know so the but willamette I, willamette I, valley alchemy made some gummies that are the retreats mm -hmm. i posted them on instagram you can check them out there because i liked them so much and you know at 50 milligrams it really man it was nice by the way those are 100 milligram packages, but 50 milligram gummy. Right. So the the one that I took, the 50, yeah. I, see I what took you're the other half. Yeah, of 100 the milligrams, which is perfect. Like 100 milligrams would have sent me into paranoia, but I did like it because after the clean out, that 50 milligrams basically made me feel like I didn't have to smoke for about six hours. <laughs> but since then, been enjoying them. You've been bringing home, you brought home some, uh, well, more, more of the gummies, but. Adabinol, pomegranate. Yeah, you just brought home the Adabinol last, last night. night, the pomegranate. For Got you. the new flavors, the new summer flavors in. And that's straight scissor, so you can pour that stuff in sodas. I tried to get you to put it in club soda last night, and you wanted it in a... Oh, my God. It's called bubbly. <laughs> I know. So you told By me to get way, bubbly. I thought that was club soda. He <laughs> thought that meant club uh -huh. soda. I meant actually, you know, the commercial, Buble, Bubble. I don't know the commercial. You've seen it on TV. It's called okay. Michael Buble. He does it? Yes. Oh He's holding God. up the bubbly no, I saying, didn't know. this is wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, you'd have to see the commercial. I, I, I didn't. It's kind of funny. So that's why He's I got He's even the... arguing with the kid about it. <laughs> It's so bad. I know. We're com talking about two completely, completely different products. I know. So now we got club soda. I don't know what the hell to do with. Didn't you say make a spritzer? Yeah. Yeah. I guess cranberry spritzer. We'll make a spritzer. Or you just have to buy more Adabinol for us. That's true. Or bring it home, yeah. That's a lot of Adabinol. <laughs> you got a big bottle of Anyway, it. that stuff's the bomb. We took that last night. It really makes me sleep well. I don't know about anybody like you guys out there, but... It does my endocannabinoid system good. Yes. For you, what about you? You want to talk about your... We've, we're going to start this little thing called A Day in the Life of a Bud Tender. And <laughs> because there's so many really good stories that 
uh, Lady Sativa brings home that makes the evening fun. And so here's a popular vote one. Tell me what you guys think. You can always email us and let us know. But tell, why don't you tell the story? Okay. Well, my first customer of basically the week comes in and um, right away asks me for hash. And uh, we on our shelf don't have hash as everybody else all, you know, everybody from the day that I was born and on up knows hash as what you get off of the plant with um, either dry ice or, you know, the hash finger hash when you're trimming, you know, you, you, all that stuff. Everybody knows what hash is. Anyways, he comes in and asks for hash. And I told him, well, we don't have any hash on the shelf. And he points over at our extracts. Okay. I know our extracts is BHO. Of course, there's BHO can also be known as butane hash oil, but I have always known it as butane honey oil. It's because you're old as fuck. <laughs> um, I have always known it as that because <laughs> you take butane and you take flour and you make oil out of it. Butane honey oil. Anyways, so he gets angry with me right off the start when I say that we don't have hash. Like, I say we don't have hash. We have extracts and I point over at the case. He gets angry with me right away this guy's maybe 23 years old he's his id was in the 90s at least um and his girlfriend reluctantly handed me her id too and right away when i say that we have extracts and he says hash he gets she gets angry and says let's stop arguing right away i was not arguing whatsoever i just pointed out our extracts which as a bud tender that's what I'm supposed to do, correct? I'm supposed to lead people in the direction they're supposed to in our shop. Or they were wanting to go. Anyway, so he gets more and more angry. And I, you know, just, I tell him, I'm like, well, we have some hash rosin over here. And this is all of our extracts. He's all, this is hash. He's like, I know this is hash. Everybody else knows this is hash. And I'm like, okay, well, this is extracts. But you can call it hash, but, you know, it's it's B-H-O. And he's like, I know. And basically, he got very upset, ended up not buying anything. And I was just, you know, explaining, you know, this is made with extract. So this is not considered hash. Hash is taken straight off the plant and there is nothing to it. There is no edit, added extra, um, extra product put into it, basically. There's no extraction process. That's what I'm looking for. <laughs> Extract. Got uh, it. Ha, there it is. Um, there's no extraction process to it besides taking it off the plant. So for me, it's considered a concentrate. Hash is considered a concentrate. Uh, well, back in our day, it was honey oil. Yes, like it's if you been butane honey oil since I was young. <laughs> when that stuff was being made originally, it was all black market. Uh, you know, you look at some old YouTube videos and it was butane honey oil. Because of the consistency. I think so, probably. Yes. Yeah. Um, but that's also, you know, that's switched now for these younger generation. It's yes. pretty much accepted that it's hash oil. But Well, and even that, I, I'm sorry, but hash is not how you make it. You make it with fresh fucking flour. You don't make it with hash. There is no hash in the process of butane honey oil whatsoever. Do you, <laughs> do you agree? Yeah, but I'm old school, but I just don't, you know, I can see why they would argue because he's being, it's... Okay, well, he didn't call it BHO when he walked in. He called it straight up fucking hash. Mm, mm -hmm. He asked for hash. We don't have fucking hash. That's powdery substance. Sorry, or we pressed, don't have that. Pressed keef. Or pressed keef. It's a fucking <laughs> coin, whatever, but a it coin. is not It is not what we have on our shelves. 
Right. You cannot find hash in our in our shop whatsoever. Okay. <laughs> and that's the end of the day in a life of a butt tender. <laughs> well, like I said, I it was originally honey oil, but you know, I think it's just a general term now that's kind of abused for whatever's concentrated. Mm-hmm. So Well concentrates different than extracts. Look in our system. I know, but even that confuses <laughs> me sometimes. Um but yeah, there is definitely a difference. There's so much on the shelf now, though. Mm-hmm. And that's so, why it has to be all in different categories. It's because of everything that comes out. I think also time, like if you do propane, um, it's and they call it PHO. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to call it propane honey oil because it's, it's not powder. honey. It's, it's, it's chunky. Yeah, it's gross. It's hard, like rocky, spongy looking stuff. So that's probably another factor too. Like you can't really call that stuff. Honey but they didn't oil. do that shit back in the day. They didn't do mm. propane back in the no, day. No, not at all. So okay, well. Anyway, extracts and, and uh, edibles and and concentrates are all good for your ECS system. Can we all agree on that? Mm-hmm. All right. This this is a little bit longer. It's about an hour. So we'll go ahead and uh, get into it. Again, uh, these guys were with Evio, and I don't know if I think Anthony still might be there, but um, but Jason has moved on and he's doing some other stuff, and we're going to catch up with Jason later on too. Yeah, like we need to catch up on. with him. So, all right, here it is: Jason Wilson and Anthony Smith. All right, guys. So let's talk about the Emerald Conference. Oh. Yeah, that was um, right at the beginning of February. Um, it's in San Diego. Mm-hmm. Pretty um, big, pretty big conference. Yeah, and it's um, it's a cool cannabis conference because it, it's well for us it's really cool because it, it really focuses on um, just the science aspect of things. And um, this year they brought in. Uh, typically, it's all about analytical testing for the most part. This year they expanded it a little bit more to have uh, more talks about extraction science and uh, that sort of um, side as well. So it was, it was really cool. The first day, um, spent a lot of time talking about contaminants and extractions. And uh, then the second day, they spent a lot of time primarily talking about issues in analytical testing, what um, different folks are learning and studying um, all across the country. There were um, people there, obviously from the West Coast, but then there were people like there was a hemp farmer from Kentucky that was there talking about their experience growing hemp and doing extractions with hemp and that sort of thing. And um, there was uh, another guy from Arkansas that was uh, an expert on supercritical fluid extraction and sort of explaining how other industries have utilized that technology, not just to do extractions of oils and that sort of thing, but also to do like cleanup to remove let's say metals or toxins and that sort of thing from uh different products and yeah it was it was really cool really really fascinating a lot of really good talks a lot of good presenters um um oregon was represented um roger volker was there from og analytical talking about pesticide testing um gave a good talk on some of the issues uh, and complications behind um trying to do that sort of work um it was it was really nice. It sparked a lot of ideas. <laughs> I like the talk by Chris Hudala, who is the chief at Proverdi Labs on the East Coast. And uh, at one point, I thought that our technical methods and rules in Oregon were uh, a tough standard, but 
Um, are they in New Jersey or Maine? Um, I don't recall off the top of my head. But, uh, I mean, everything that's sold there, Massachusetts. Yeah, Massachusetts. Uh, is tested for heavy metals, a, a wide-spectrum microbiology panel, plus cannabinoids, residual solvents, pesticides. Um, I mean, the cannabis in Massachusetts must be really pharmaceutical grade. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it is rivaling what Oregon's doing. Yeah. And I'd say they're, they're a little closer to kind of um, what Nevada has been doing as far as the, how strenuous the testing is and the breadth of, of testing required. Yeah. But it is a state where there are actual children, um, you know, families with children migrating to that state specifically because you can get um, products, especially high-potency CBD products there um, that are, you know, to pharmaceutical cleanliness grade. So, yeah. Interesting to see. Um, I also, uh, we were talking earlier, really was excited about um, John Abrams' talk. Yeah, yeah, he had a, a really interesting talk about sampling. It's a big question because there's a presumption that there's a lot of variation when you sample an entire uh, garden uh, of cannabis, even if it's the same strain. Everybody understands that the potency of that, uh, you know, materials throughout that batch and throughout that part of the garden and the plant vary a lot. But I think in some people's mind, maybe that's a couple of percentage points. Um, but what are, what were they, the spread that they were looking at? 30% difference in THCA content. Yeah, I think overall variance was about 28%. Uh, 28% on one, on, that's just on one plant? That's on not one. percentage points. That's just like a, a percentage. I see. Mm-hmm. Right. So the range of data. So what they're doing is they're looking at THCA content um, in various buds uh, in some test gardens. And so they took four different um, strains and had different test gardens. Um, and they did indoor and outdoor plots. And then they looked at the THCA content from plants from the outside of the plot versus the inside of the plot. They also statistically, if I'm right, compared to uh, on a plant, Mm -hmm. on the height of the plant, high, middle, low on the plant where the bud was from. And didn't they also look at on the nodes, high, Mm -hmm. middle, low on the node? I believe so, yeah. Um, Looking at THCA content and found, uh, I don't know if they're ever going to publish this data, but it was was really interesting. So 30%, um, I think they were, you know, the range was roughly uh, 18 to 25 or 26% THCA. I mean, so that's... Mm-hmm. Uh, five or six percentage points of potency, which is fairly wide. I mean, we've mm-hmm. seen um, well, especially if you're trying anecdotally to... wider than that, even. But well, yeah, and these guys are trying to, assumably, sell their cannabis, right? So, I mean, unfortunately, some of those percentage points are going to mean something. And um, another interesting thing they found that's sort of in the data they presented is as you'd expect stuff that was taken from the bottoms of the plants tended to have lower potencies that's pretty standard knowledge but the thing they found is um, standard knowledge (laughs) is that because you don't get the well lights not hitting you know as much just some basic stuff like that but yeah they found that the, the difference between the middle of the plant and the top of the plant 
sometimes the top of the plant had more THC, other times the middle of the plant would have more THC, and so it got a little more counterintuitive when you looked at the middle and the tops versus the bottom. Um, thought that was just particularly interesting to me. Um, that no, it wasn't necessarily consistent. It wasn't like, you know, it's the least amount of cannabinoids in the bottom, and then the middle's the middle, and then the most cannabinoids are at the top. It didn't quite fit into that that paradigm no but they couldn't correlate it to anything else like stress or disease or pests or anything like that they endeavored to control all that in these Mm -hmm. test plots Uh, yeah Yeah. um and then with respect uh it also followed what we would perceive as common sense to or our presumption about the inside of a plot versus the edge of a plot especially with outdoor the edge plot um plants had higher thca wow Yeah. yeah And there's no, they don't know of any correlation at this point. They presumably sun. Yeah, it's presumably sun exposure and potentially. I I don't know how these plants were grown as far as if they were fertilized or anything like that. So I don't know anything about those variables, and they'd have to expound on all of that. But yeah, presumably the major correlation would be sunlight, and you know, plants that are able to get more sunlight thoroughly throughout the entire plant, you know, are going to do a little better than stuff that's sort of towards the middle of the plot that's getting shaded out by other things more. And the range of on the high, middle, low on a plant was much bigger than the range that you saw, for example, border versus inside of the plot, right? I mean, yeah. where was that graph? I think they ranged from like 10% to 18% THC uh, in the, the points studied when they were just looking at high, middle, low on the plant. So Now, I mean, um, this this could... With that kind of variance, that could almost make or break somebody when it comes to showing off stats in a dispensary, couldn't it? Um, it could. I mean, it, it gives you an idea. You know, in Oregon, you know, we're having to do the random sampling of the batches, and then in the lab, everything gets homogenized. And so it's become pretty well understood now that the potency values that clients are getting in Oregon are essentially an average value that's supposed to be representative of the batch as a whole. And so depending on a number of factors as far as, you know, what gets sampled and what gets combined and everything, I mean, this sort of data shows you that, you know, yeah, if you cherry-picked buds that were on the top of the plant exposed to the most light, you know, all that sort of stuff, you may get your, you know, your high you know, 20 percenters and that sort of thing. But then from the same plant, you know, taken from a different part, you're looking at something that could be as low as like 14 or 13 percent or so. And when you average those together, you know, you get something in between. Um, And so it it gave a lot of validation to sort of why we're seeing the shifts in average potency values in Oregon because of the way the sampling's done and the way the testing's done has changed and gotten, you know, more standardized and and that kind of thing. And certainly if someone's sending off samples for like informational use only testing just for their own R&D, then yeah, picking from the, the bottom of the plant or the top of the plant, I mean, that's that's all stuff that you've got to keep in mind. That it's definitely going to vary and it can vary as much as, yeah, those five to six or seven percentage points, which can be a lot. That can be the determining factor whether a dispensary values your product you know, at let's say fifteen hundred dollars versus a thousand dollars or seven hundred dollars. You know, yeah, it's um, a big deal. It is a big deal. Yeah. Um, let me ask you this: Have they talked about the rest of the profile besides THCA? Have they talked about the CBDs and stuff in terms of do those change too based on 
in the study that we're talking about, they, they only did that. They they looked at a range of cannabinoids. Their focus was on THCA. Yeah. Um, I don't know if their data is available for all of the other cannabinoids. I um, see. Their main presentation was about THCA, although they did talk about CBD in the context of um, um, trying to understand if cannabis strains are changing over time to produce more or less THCA versus CBDA. And they found some evidence supporting that um, the average CBDA concentration in high THCA plants is steadily going down the longer that those high THC varieties are bred. Um, which lends some credibility to the claim that some of the cannabis that's grown today is stronger than you know it was in the past. And there was some there was some other uh, research that was presented at the conference that further supported this idea that you can actually measure you know these alleles that are responsible for expressing different enzymes that are responsible for building um, CBGA that leads to THCA and all that. And they've actually been able to to display that, you know, it seems like the, in high THC varieties, the allele frequency that would be responsible for sort of promoting CBD production is going down and getting pushed out over time. And so sure enough, genetic evidence lends itself to say, like, actually, the cannabis today, some of it is stronger than it ever has been. Interesting. Yeah. If you're, if you're talking about strength as being synonymous with THC. I see. Yeah. Gotcha. Which there, you know, there's all kinds of issues with that. No, obviously the terpenes right. affect the potency and that sort of thing. But and CBD expressors are definitely not going away. That's not that's not what that data means. Uh, right. There's a lot of a uh, lot of progressive breeding going on in the CBD as well. But right. definitely in high THC strains. I think it's interesting because most of these strains have been bred for years without the breeders actually having access to reliable. THC measurement. Yeah. That hasn't been what they're breeding for, technically. They're breeding for, you know, smells and looks and robustness and, and How uniqueness. It feels and, and if you're on the street, it's yield, bag appeal. Yeah. Bag appeal, exactly. <laughs> um, yet, nonetheless, the THC numbers uh, click upward. Yeah. Um, through breeding. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, do you, so honestly, you guys, in your personal opinions, do you think that we do have? more potent cannabis than what we had considering the good stuff. I mean, the right. old, you know, uh, land race trains we had way back in the day. I mean, do you, we, it gets, it gets into one of those things where it depends on how you look at it. Technically. Yeah. Um, on a practical level, I'm not sure anyone would ever appreciate the difference. Um, it's the same as micro brews. Like, I yeah. hate to keep throwing that one. Out, no, but in the seventies, you could scour the world and find a fine, high alcohol, stout, dark beer. There weren't many, um, but you know now they're made all over the place, and there there's different <laughs> types of beers that we've never heard of, and everyone you know can invent and breed a new flavor, um, right? And, and, and consumers love it, and, and, and that's the driver, <laughs> right? You know, right. That, well, and hopefully it keeps craft cannabis around. I mean, you know, these mm-hmm. smaller growers or home growers, <laughs> and, and growers. definitely as as consumers get more, and and the producers get more sophisticated about understanding, you know, all of these different aspects of the plant, like the terpenes, and you know, like 
less frequently talked about flavonoids and you know, other all kinds of other compounds too um, you know that's all going to affect future breeding and you know kind of what's in demand and and sort of providing an avenue to supply products like that you know that where you know the grower is actually valuing a little more than just you know dense buds and high THC but they're breeding you know very specific products for you know different types of tastes and and statistically i mean this change in cbd like you know over time on average the cbd concentration in high thc varieties is going down but it's really hard to make sense of like i said on a practical level what that really means other than recognizing that it's happening because you're talking about like oh instead of two percent it's producing one and a half percent now it's producing one percent cbd and um, you know, at those levels, like, does that cause an appreciable difference in the experience of the product? I don't know. There was a good uh, talk given by um, uh, Reggie, I forget his last name, he works with Steep Hill, but he, he gave a talk about... Um, Reggie Gardino. That's it, yeah. Um, looking at the genetics of the cannabis plant and looking at all these different markers and, you know, what they can can make sense of. And they were talking about, you know... THCV is an interesting cannabinoid to look at because, you know, right now, you know, we're, we're talking about CBD, but CBD is now already being, you know, bred into plant populations and we're seeing a lot more high CBD plants. THCV is still one of these cannabinoids. You still don't see many strains that exhibit high THCV. And traditionally, up until pretty recently, it was kind of speculated that overall you really would never see cannabis plants with high THCV unless you like genetically modified them to produce it. Um, but it turns out there, there is a, a strain floating around um, that uh, they, they said produces equal amounts of THCVA to THCA, um, which is pretty remarkable. And so far they've only documented one particular strain that exhibits that trait. Um, and is it called Acapulco Gold? <laughs> <laughs> it was called um, well, DV4, Doug's, Doug's Varen. Is what it was called. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, and they, they talked about it's THCV pr- provides an interesting opportunity to um, follow these trends and how breeding affects genetics and everything because this provides a, a point where they can sort of track the changes of breeding over the next several years and kind of see how different varieties change in their THC production, THCV production, and how, you know, um, different alleles are getting expressed over time because, you know, now that cultivators have access to lab data. And THCV is one of those compounds that not a lot of labs are testing for yet. It's a little more complicated to get accurate results on THCV and CBDV, but definitely going forward in the future, more and more labs will be testing for it. That feedback will be there for cultivators, and so they'll be able to breed for that, you know, whereas before it was kind of impossible because you didn't have any data or feedback to work off of to know, to target, you know, anything like that. So out of interest of being clear, let's let the listeners know THCV. What is it? THCV, so it's, it's, there are kind of two different like primary sets of cannabinoids that are synthesized in the cannabis plant. Um, get super technical briefly. Um, you have one series of a synthetic pathway that's based around this compound called olivitolic acid, 
it binds with a compound called GPP, and that forms CBGA, and that'll form your uh, THCA, CBDA, CBCA, and that sort of thing. But then you have another pathway that involves a compound called divarinic acid, and when it binds to GPP, it forms um, CBGVA, which then forms THCVA, CBDVA, um, so forth and so on. And the primary difference between these compounds, THC and THCV are essentially exactly the same, but uh, THCV has a shorter carbon chain coming off of the primary molecule structure. It has, I think, three fewer carbons in it than THC does. And that's the primary difference, um, but it, it has um, pretty substantial effects on, on um, sort of what it does pharmacologically and how it interacts so, with receptors yeah. and that sort of so thing. So that's the question is, does it get you high? We have no clue. <laughs> yeah. There's a consumption based <laughs> on short the, answer. the shape is so different that, you know, based on what we know about receptor kinetics and, and ligands and things like that, that yes, it probably binds with completely different kinetics, you know, to re cannabinoid receptors than, mm -hmm. than THC. But does it get you high or does it cure cancer? Or does it do anything clinically? We have no clue at all. Yeah. I mean, there have been some very basic cell culture studies that have been done on, on THCV to look at how it interacts with different cell types and how it binds to different receptors. And they found some, they, researchers uh, that have been doing this work have found some interesting data about THCV that it um, it's one of these compounds, like most compounds, honestly, but it um, acts one way in low concentrations and totally separate way in high concentrations. And off the top of my head, I do not remember what would be considered a low or high concentration. And this is all based off of, like I said, these really simple models that you know are not in humans or anything like that, so it's hard to extrapolate from. But they know that THCV will bind to CB1 receptors, and CB1 receptors are responsible for eliciting the psychoactivity of cannabis. But THCV, in certain concentrations, will act sort of like CBD does. It'll bind to the receptor and just hog up space. Um, and not cause any actual activity on the receptor. It acts as an antagonist. Um, whereas in other concentrations, it can actually stimulate the receptor and act as an agonist. Um, which So that further complicates the issue of will it get you high or not, maybe. In certain <laughs> concentrations, we have no idea what those concentrations would be. Or synergistically, maybe. Or, yeah, and synergistically, we have no idea. And we have no idea, you know what happens to the compound that I know of. I haven't seen any papers about, you know, what happens to the compound when it, um, you know, is being heated up. What sort of byproducts does it make or anything? I have no idea, really. We just kind of know some basic pharmacology about it. Sounds pretty clear. Yeah, super clear. <laughs> clear as mud. I think it's mostly of interest these days because uh, it does something. And that, that sounds silly, but... Um, it seems to be that there are unique strains that tend to express it and others generally don't at all. Where with your, I don't want to say your regular cannabinoids, but the more typical ones that are, you know, that are in our everyday assays, your CBG and your CBC and mm -hmm. your CBN, these are compounds that, you know, are generally present in almost all um, THC-type strains that we look at. And so they're sometimes up or down, um, but THCV in particular seems to be strain-specific. Certain ones have it or not. 
Interesting. And with breeding, seems to be able to move that. All right, Jason. So let's talk about... Now, you had mentioned CBDV. Yeah. Yeah. So why don't you talk about that? It sounds like you have some studies or something. Uh, yeah, there's, so we were talking about, you know, how there's not much known about what THCV or CBDV will, will do to a person. Um, there has been one that I know of only one, um, actual clinical study, uh, done in people, uh, with CBDV. Um, and it was done by a company named GW Pharmaceuticals. Um, and they basically created a pharmaceutical product out of CBDV that, if you're trying to search for it, it's just called GWP42006, very sort of cryptic name, but you can imagine it just stands for the company and then a you know, sequential identifier they use for it. But it just went through a phase one clinical trial, and you can look it up on uh, clinicaltrials.gov. You can actually find it and search for, if you search for GWP42006, you'll find the study. It's done, I guess, a, uh, a couple years ago. Um, and basically they were just looking at, um, epilepsy, um, which already is really common with CBD, um, trying to understand how, what sort of opportunities might exist to, um, integrate CBD into treatments for epilepsy and that sort of thing. So, um, they're doing that work on CBDV as well. Um, I don't think the results of that study have been shared yet, so we'll find out soon. Um, what kind of value there might be in CBDV and um, if it's worth sort of further investigating, at least um, for the treatment of epilepsy. Um, Sounds like there's some inclination or speculation that there might be. Yeah, I mean, based on some of the pharmacodynamics that, you know, we sort of know about these compounds, which those kinds of studies are really hard to make sense of because, you know, we've talked about before, and when you look at a compound in isolation exposed to receptors, that's a much different series of dynamics than looking at a group of compounds exposed to a receptor and sort of all of the things that are happening in your body at once um, when you ingest a compound. Um, but based on how it interacts with cannabinoid receptors and everything, it led you know researchers to um, make a hypothesis that it might, you know, actually, um, do something positive for treating epilepsy. Gotcha. Um, so yeah, everyone keep an eye out on that study and what the results are on that. Um, you might end up seeing a CBDV pharmaceutical yeah. sometime relatively That'd soon. That'd be interesting. Yeah. yeah. It would really, really would be. Mm-hmm. Do you think that we'll see in the future pharmacies jumping on this train, yeah, if you will? I think it's, uh, yeah, and it's part and parcel to kind of the direction that we're going, gaining a greater understanding of the cannabinoid system, or the human endocannabinoid system in general. Um, I don't think it's ever going to replace the traditional ethnobotanical use of cannabis right. um, in, in human society. Um, people don't only use cannabis for therapeutic reasons. It's definitely therapeutic, and... And I can't imagine people enjoying, you know, a sublingual spray to replace all of the parts of cannabis <laughs> cultivation and consumption that, that they like. So, And it's just a different concept in general. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's allopathic medicine versus uh, natural or traditional medicine. And neither is going to shove the other aside anytime soon, I don't think. Um, 
I'm, I'm super interested in, you know, the, the patenting and the development of these pharmaceutical applications for these natural compounds. I'm interested in natural compound drugs in general. Um, I, you know, we'll see where this goes because the way that drug design goes is when you have an, a nice molecule that does something interesting, you give it to your synthetic chemists and you put different decorating groups all around it and change the length of this or that chain or this or that mm -hmm. uh, chiral bond and and produce these spectrum of synthetic drug-like compounds that they now run through initially toxicology tests and eventually, you know, through cell culture studies and then start mm -hmm. to develop actually drugs from those. That'll be interesting to watch, you know, if the natural cannabis chemistry starts driving, I guess for lack of a better term, synthetic cannabinoid drugs. Now, we've already heard that term in popular culture. There are synthetic cannabinoid drugs. They're not actual drugs. These are synthetic putative drug targets that now have, I guess, escaped in, in some senses into some pop culture. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm talking about more, you know, engineered drug design, not right. not, not so much. And a, a lot of those are getting called semi-synthetics in the cannabinoid world. I've seen a couple presentations about some modified versions of CBG. Um, I can't remember what they call it. Um, it's some sort of cryptic descriptor name, but um, they've looked at, you know, just adding a ketone to CBG and trying to see what that does and how it affects things and sort of developing pharmaceutical drugs that way. Um, but that's not necessarily, you know, just because CBG has been demonstrated to be pretty safe, um, that doesn't mean that slightly modifying the compound is going to maintain its safety profile. Um, and there's been some different cases throughout medical science and research that have sort of demonstrated that. Um, one very recently that was looking at endocannabinoid research and they uh, they were administering um, enzyme inhibitors to people to try to boost um, endocannabinoid production, and it actually ended up putting some people in the hospital. Um, wow! And they it should have been pretty safe. It was held up its safety profile in rodent models and that sort of thing. Um, but when they actually gave it to people, they found that it uh, there were some adverse effects and um, unintended consequences. It seems like any time you change something that occurs naturally into something either a chemical or synthetic, you always get a slew of side effects or or something bad that comes along right. with it. Um, We're seeing interesting uh, products come down the pike uh, that are pushing those boundaries in the recreational cannabis uh, industry. I mean... Most of the concentrates you see are fairly, you know, raw, not so processed, and so they are natural fractions. But more and more, we're seeing um, products come out of short path distillation units and um, so-called molecular distillers and and other um, other versions of fractional distillation and. We are seeing in some of these products uh, unique as yet un unknown peaks, you know, that don't mimic anything we see in, in, in natural fractions. Um, 
and some of these guys are pretty smart chemists and are actually trying to you know drive some of these reactions looking for um, isomerizations uh, to other cannabinoid isomers or um, yeah, other interesting conjugates that probably are relatively uncharacterized yeah. and some of that stuff will eventually push the limits of what we consider natural product versus something refined. Uh, people seem to, to like those products. Maybe, maybe these are things that are favorable or, or pleasant, but they're, they're not compounds that we typically see. Interesting. That's and yeah, and there's basically nothing known about them. <laughs> right, right, and obviously no specific testing or anything like that. That's gonna no, you know, yeah, no, no targeted, yeah. yeah, no targeted testing. If anything, just R and D. We're trying to figure it out for ourselves, um, just because you know I don't know. I don't presume there's a public health problem there at all. But when there's unknown compounds being formed in products that people are consuming, I'm definitely interested in finding out what those are. Mm -hmm. yeah. And we have some ideas. We'll pursue this as a project over time, but uh, it's an interesting trend to see. Mm -hmm. For sure. It would be nice to think that it's not immediately bad. No, um, I don't because presume it's, it's acutely toxic at right. all because people are consuming these things. Right. right. And it is a natural product. I mean, you can cook uh, grapeseed extract or things like that and, mm -hmm. and, and see similar type uh, isomerizations and polymerizations and different catalyzed re reactions and things. Um, but at some point it, it, it might cross over and not be a quote natural product. So, right. Just from the processes it goes through. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And how unique the compounds actually are. Yeah. Gotcha. That's, that's yeah. down there. All right, so if that's all we have and there's nothing left that you guys want to talk about, I have something I'd like to uh, present to both of you guys. Sure. Um, now, me and Jason, and I want your input here, Anthony, is we started <coughs> briefly after we left on our last interview. We talked about uh, the mycorrhizal network um, and what it means to cannabis. You know, we know, uh, was it Suzanne Smard, I believe? did testing 25, 30 years ago, and she was the uh, doctor that realized that uh, the trees uh, have this ecto-mycorrhizae mm -hmm. okay. uh, yeah, system, yeah. yeah, and that they communicate in great distance and stuff. A lot of people have exploited that, uh, but as, at least in my research, I understand that cannabis has an endo-mycorrhizal network, and it acts a little bit differently. Um, now, Jason, we talked actually pretty much in depth about it mm -hmm. what's your feeling about that with cannabis uh is it beneficial i mean there's so many questions i have because you guys have kind of studied this and i, I want to know what you think too um i you know um so i have a big passion for mycology in general um and i was really fortunate when i was at the university of mississippi to study mycology under a researcher there um Dr. Jason Huxima that did um, some substantial mycorrhizal research in the West looking at trees and, you know, what's being shared in these mycorrhizal networks and that sort of thing. And um, studying all of that, it, it really challenged my sort of simplified notions on how all of this stuff works and how it's presented in um, a lot of, like, pop science literature and um 
And then when I when I came to Oregon and started studying at Southern Oregon University, I worked on designing some research projects uh, intending to look at um, mycorrhizal associations among native plants and trying to understand how um, different plant populations affect fungal populations in the soil, that sort of thing. And what I learned is that, um, you know, there's some basics that apply. You know, trees tend to have associations with these ectomycorrhizal fungi. And, and the ectoendo thing refers to how the fungus um, sort of integrates with a root. So ectomycorrhizae form like these uh, sort of sheaths around the root, whereas um, endomycorrhizae, which that term's not used that frequently anymore, you hear uh, it's used about... on nutrient bottles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, generally, um, that's referring to um, what are called AMFs, arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi. And so they'll actually sometimes um, penetrate the root itself and, um, and, and get inside the root and, and colonize. And um, so they're able to, to have these um, unique, relationships where they can really intimately share carbon and water and, and all these other things with, with the plants. Um, but uh, my point is, uh, trees tend to exhibit these um, relationships with ectomycorrhizal fungi, um, uh, mostly because they live for a long time, <laughs> more than one year. <laughs> and these ectomycorrhizal fungi, it, it takes them a while to get established and, and grow and, and form these relationships where they can actually benefit from them. Um, whereas other types of plants that are more short-lived um, tend to associate with arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi, and pretty much all, almost all plants um, associate with arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi in some way or another. Um, and there have been studies that have shown that when plants um, form these associations with mycorrhizal fungi, that sometimes... Um, you can get boosts um, to uh, biomass production and, and plant yield and that sort of thing. Um, but it, it's not always a symbiotic relationship with mycorrhizal fungi. And, um, and even if it's a symbiotic relationship, that doesn't necessarily imply that your, your plant's growth is going to benefit um, in a measurable way like that. Sometimes the the benefit is so subtle that all it does is sort of protect the plant from dying off, but that doesn't mean it's going to enhance its growth vigor or, or something like that. And and when I was designing this these research projects, I, I learned quite a bit about evidence that shows that, you know, these relationships can actually become parasitic in certain um, conditions and, and that plant growth can actually be stunted by mycorrhizal fungi associations in certain aspects. And what all that points to is just that there's a lot to learn and these dynamics are really complicated. And it's not as simple as just introducing a whole bunch of mycorrhizal fungi to your plant and, oh, now it's going to do better and, and grow better and need less. Um, it's, it's a lot more complicated than that. And, um, plants generally uh, will not associate with mycorrhizal fungi very strongly if they don't actually have a need to. And that need is usually identified in um, 
a lot of research today as um, a need for phosphorus specifically. If a plant can't get phosphorus, and part of the reason for that is sort of the um, electrical charge that phosphorus has, it tends to leach out of soil really easily, whereas other um, nutrients tend to get bound in the clay um, particles and soil and that sort of thing. So phosphorus gets leached out really easily, and so plants a lot of times experience a deficit in phosphorus, or if phosphorus is available in the soil, it's not bioavailable to the plant, and so it's in some other other form. And uh, so mycorrhizal fungi are really good at making that phosphorus available for the plant. And so in certain situations, you know, plants will definitely um, engage these relationships. Um, sometimes they won't. And what I found is that plants that are opportunistic plants or um, um, exhibit invasive qualities, uh, these plants that really don't need much help growing, um, they tend to uh, strip soils of fungal populations over time, and that's because they don't need the relationship, and so there's very little colonization that happens, and then the spores end up uh, kind of migrating away over time, and the fungal diversity tends to decrease in the soil. Um, this type of research hasn't been done on cannabis, so it's impossible to say, you know, what else is going on with cannabis cultivation with mycorrhizal fungi, but I have suspicions and um, interest in, in looking at this further because I have a concern that a lot of cultivators um, sort of drawn in by the, the promise of mycorrhizal fungi and, and what it will do for the, um, for the plant. They may be spending money on inoculants and that sort of thing that may not actually be doing anything to actually help their their end goal, which is usually enhancing yield or, um, you know, plant growth. And so bottom line is that it's really, really complicated. And these are really complex dynamics that, you know, ecologists are trying really hard to understand because um, ecologists recognize mycorrhizal fungi as a potential resource to help um, restore degrading landscapes. And that's sort of where my research background was coming in was trying to understand these dynamics with the idea of how do we help native plants establish in an area overrun by invasives and can mycorrhizal fungi be a, a tool to help um, these plants get established um, and help compete against the, the invasives. And So there's a lot of ecological and, and sort of like microbiome research that needs to be done on um, on the, the biome of the, the root mass and, and what else going on there to try to understand if some of these mycorrhizal fungi are really doing much or not. Um, one thing that's cool about the AMFs um, is they're all part of the, the glomus genus, which a lot of cultivators that have used inoculants, they're familiar with glomus. And glomus produces a compound called glomulin. Um, and glomulin is referred to commonly as a soil glue. And so it can actually um, sort of bind nutrients and other uh, compounds in the soil and keep them in place to help prevent leaching. And so there are all kinds of different ways to look at this. Um, the mycorrhizal fungi, are they helping the plant grow better or enhancing yield? You know, there's, there's that question. But then there's also, even if they're not helping with that, are they helping your soil structure? That's another question to look at. And there may be value in introducing these organisms um, just for that aspect, if they are helping to enhance 
um, soil structure and, and fight against nutrient leaching and that sort of thing. But in order for that to happen, you have to get the fungi to colonize something and start growing. And so, you know, that comes back to this question, given that other research has shown that quote-unquote weedy plants tend to um, not exhibit much specificity towards um, mycorrhizal fungi and generally don't really care much for those associations and don't get much out of those relationships because they don't need it. You know, just cannabis fall into that camp. That's They're on we, their own. That's what we need to. That's that's kind of what we need. Strong, to know. independent ladies, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> they are. They are. Um, so I don't know. That's kind of a brain dump of some of my thoughts on the mycorrhizal fungi. I'm a little skeptical on the claims that are made um, about you know what these inoculants can do, and there's all kinds of other issues. <laughs> Related to lab testing, like, um, you know, these products say they have all of these organisms in them or all, you know, these spore counts in them. Like, do they really? I don't know. Um, maybe they If do. they did, would it do anything? Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and there's been um, several different reports. I think the ODA put out a report early last year, um, maybe it was the year before, about this very topic, and they looked at um, inoculants that are commonly used in agriculture and they found that more often than not um, the claims on the product label were drastically exaggerated and at times they didn't even find any traces of these organisms in those products and so you know there's a lot to kind of be wary of there um you know, I'm not saying that it's pointless to, to use mycorrhizal inoculants. It's just, it's a big unknown. And if people are using them and they're getting value out of it, then that's great and yeah. awesome. And and that's information that sort of needs to be sure. shared a little bit of as far as, um, you know, what is making a difference. And, yeah. you know, until some really sophisticated um, ecological studies are done, you can't really answer it. It's so hard to say you can't control no. all these variables in no. a typical cultivation setting to make a claim one way or the other. Right. Good. I don't doubt the you know the the potential for what mycorrhizal science might be able to do for the cannabis farmer, mm-hmm. but my presumption is that getting it to work for you is far more subtle than than uh, pouring products on your soil. It's probably more along the lines of, uh, you know, exploiting um, mycorrhizal science is probably more related to like whole soil techniques, like mm-hmm. yeah. culture and no-till mm-hmm. agriculture exactly. and, and yeah. things like that. And that's yeah. what I was thinking is... is um, it it's becomes more about nutrient cycling yeah, than anything right. at that point. Yeah. And... and a lot of cultivators don't actually engage mycorrhizal fungi. A lot of times they're engaging saprophytic fungi and calling them mycorrhizal fungi. Saprophytic fungi, rather than creating relationships with other organisms to stay alive, they actually just break down dead organic matter. So your typical molds. Is that like trichoderma? That yeah, kind of thing? Yeah. Okay. So most molds are, are saprophytic fungi. And, um, but you can pour bacteria and molasses in your soil to create dead stuff to feed the fungus. Right. Right. Yeah, and you can okay. get some really moldy now, soil. Okay. You know, I I may have mentioned on here before that you know well, they're just different concerns because like if you inoculate your soil with a bunch of saprophytic fungi and you've got a ton of organic matter in your soil, so that saprophytic fungi is just taken off. 
Um, then there are just other issues to deal with. And this is where like integrated pest management comes into play and whole systems design comes into play. Because if you're not prepared for the changing dynamics of a changing ecology, then you're likely going to run into at least pest problems. Um, because if you've got mold growing on your soil, you're inviting other things that might want to feed on that uh, fungus. You're inviting other types of fungi that will eat that fungus. I mean, and generally, you know, basically you're setting the stage for all kinds of new organisms to come into the system. And if you are relying on, you know, kind of a um, more sterilized version of cultivating where you're doing a lot of fertilizing and, and pesticide applications and then trying to introduce this stuff. It, there's just a lot of dynamics going on that are really difficult to control. And you may just be inviting more pests and more problems if your system is not ready to handle those dynamics. And that's why, you know, some folks are really drawn towards these um, no-till whole systems, biodynamic versions of cultivating because they're they're thinking about the whole ecology of the cultivation area so that if a dynamic changes, the system will hopefully self-correct itself right. or be able to handle those changes. Whereas in a, a more, you know, sort of what I called a more sterilized uh, form of cultivation is going to be uh, impacted a lot more by changing um, dynamics in the cultivation environment. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Plant a plant in a pot and, and it does fine on its own. It doesn't need anything else except for nutrients. And It does, but... Guys are trying to, you know, build industrial processes, and so that's not yeah. going to work um, on an industrial scale. And uh, the smart guys and gals out there in horticulture who are doing it well, they know the things that add value. You know, the the, the products or the processes that add value to their to their yield because they've done it systematically. If you're throwing things at it. Um, Maybe those things can work, but if you're throwing things at it and don't have a systematic way of deducing whether it's adding value. Uh, yeah, so the smart ones have done it patiently and changed things one at a time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm, I'm definitely not um, dissing on, you know, whether different products and, and things are, are, are worth it or not. But um, yeah, it can well, be really expensive and give you... No yield, which would be bad, but it can be really expensive and, and maybe only give you a, a tiny bit of yield, which uh, in your industrial system, you have to figure out if that is it worth it? gain is, is, is worth, you know, the expense or the time on the, you know, can you get that at the end of, of your cycle in value? Maybe so. Well, I think there's also some concern with these, these bacterias and beneficials and fungi and stuff. That there's real, all I have to do is maybe put an OMRI listing on there. Other than that, they can just say this is not a nutrient. And they're kind of free and clear from the rest of it. Right. You know yeah. what I mean? And then they can charge $100 a bottle for, you know, that, right. if you will. Whereas if you're a nutrient, you have to follow certain guidelines, labeling, right. uh, you know, all that. And that's sort of the issues Testing. that, um, like, I know Oregon made some... Uh, put out some reports throughout last year about different products that had different pesticide ingredients in them. And part of that was sort of, I think, what you're getting at. Depending on how you categorize your product, you can um, escape certain labeling rules and, you know, different different issues like that. And um, if you're using products that sort of fall into that gray area, then there's always that risk of, well, you don't really know what you're 
applying or, you know, how it's going to, um, like, affect test results or, you know, yield or any number of things that you care about. Sounds like you're just better off with a cover crop. I, you know, <laughs> I, I, I mean, in my personal garden um, <laughs> at home, you know, for anything that I'm growing, I, I institute cover cropping yeah, and companion nice. planting. Yeah. Um, Stuff that I, I I think actually it works on a small scale, but when you know, like Anthony said, when you're talking about industrial scale yeah. cultivation, that's that's a beast unto itself. Right. That you know, agriculture at large is trying to figure out how to possibly you know do large scale agriculture in a sustainable way or regenerative way. It, it's difficult and. You know, all of agriculture is looking at, you know, like the mycorrhizal fungi, you know, science of like, okay, if we can reduce um, the need for water and nutrients and pesticides and stuff just by introducing some spores in our soil, then, you know, that's a really valuable thing. Um, but it's, you know, there's just a lot you have to go through to be able to make that decision confidently of whether or not it actually is valuable and there are uh, golf courses this golf courses are a good example of sort of how mycorrhizal fungi are being used in a practical way um, a lot of golf courses now are introducing arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi spores to um, their fields um, because they're finding that it um, overall tends to decrease the need for water and so they're able to water golf courses less and um and save money and you know it's a financial thing primarily for them is just uh, reducing the cost of money as the cost of water actually you know is going up and um can't they just pour yucca extract on it right yeah <laughs> just <laughs> keep everything bound um inside the do plants. you want to elaborate on that for a second <laughs> isn't that a product like uh it's a surfactant. The, the, yeah. like the surfactants in, mm -hmm. in yucca yeah because it's it'll hold water as far as I know, a lot of growers I know use it, um, uh, even for like uh, spraying, you know, doing a foliar spray. I guess the action of it, you know, allows those droplets to, to spread more evenly along the, yeah. the leaf surface. Better wetting. Yeah, a wetting agent, yeah. Probably does, you know, some similar effects to the glomulin. Gomulin. Gomulin. Uh, you know, it's a... And then it sticks the soil together and sort of binds water between between the, the rock and the organic matter. If you look at synthetic uh, uh, nutrients and then organic nutrients, um, as important as a living soil is, there's really no evidence showing that cannabis needs that living soil per se to be able to use organic nutrients. Well, it out of it's, dirt or it's just complicated i mean <laughs> you know there's it, no doubt it works uh, right in under certain but conditions yeah uh, yeah and there's guys that are just growing cannabis in dirt right, right. and, and they're doing just fine and there are yeah. others that are using a lot of different things and they're doing just fine and you know it all depends on what your what your goals are you know if you're thinking about you know, you're wanting to grow in soil and you're wanting to maintain your soil structure and you're wanting to increase the bioavailability of bound nutrients in the soil and that sort of thing, then increasing the or enhancing the biodiversity of the soil maybe 
you know, that will help with nutrient cycling and maintaining the soil structure and all that. Even, like I said, even if it doesn't necessarily help the plant produce a better yield, it's, um, it's helping your, your cultivation media last longer and that sort of thing. Uh, maybe it'll reduce water costs. Um, and, you know, on a big picture scale, if you're trying to develop a system of cultivation that can, um, you know, be perpetuated, um, you know, for decades with, um, without compromising the cultivation area, if you're growing outdoors or whatever, um, you know, then the living soil stuff, um, it brings in other pieces because it's, you know, I, th I think there's, there's obviously a, a balance in everything, but I think too much biodiversity in soil can cause you problems. Definitely not enough biodiversity in soil is certainly going to cause you problems. Um, and so there's, there's some, somewhere in between that you kind of just have to find to figure out, you know, what, what's going to give you the value that you're going for. And depending on what you value, you know, your answers are going to be different. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. All right, Anthony, is there anything else you want to, you want to share? No, thanks for having That's me it. on. Let's okay. do it again. Yeah, we'll do it again. And we'll, we'll follow up when you guys have uh, another month or have some more information. I appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you. So, all right, guys, I appreciate it. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for Talk having to you us. Soon. All right. Thank you.